It's October 1929. The stock market has crashed. In the following years, unemployment rises as the world economy plummets. In Salt Lake City, recent college graduate Evelyn Hodges accepts a position in the Relief Society Social Services Department. The impact of the Depression on Latter-day Saints and the role Evelyn Hodges plays in the relief are discussed next in Chapter 20, Hard Times. This is Saints, Volume 3, the podcast. Welcome to the Saints Podcast. I'm James Perry. And I'm Salem Back. Joining us today is Jill Mulvey-Deux, who has researched and written on the Relief Society, and Joe Dorowski, a retired historian. Thank you both for being here and welcome to the podcast. To get us started, I thought we could just have a bit of a general conversation to see what your thoughts are about Saints generally, the three volumes that we have. Well, reading the first two volumes, of course, that are available, it's a different approach. As a historian, you're used to looking at chronologies and details and looking for interesting stories to include. But with saints, we have such a focus on individuals and grassroots experiences and so on. So it's a great complementary source of material related to the early history, especially for someone who isn't interested in drilling down deeply into a traditional or classic historical approach to these issues and questions that come up. So it's been very enjoyable and it's been very enlightening. For myself, I like the idea of a grassroots approach. Working on the Joseph Smith Papers project, we were working with the original documents. So what you saw was events happen as they were unfolding, but for people who didn't know how it was going to turn out. And I think Saints it helps me and help, it probably should help members get a feel for what it was actually like living through something, a personal experience, a human being there on the ground, and this was live, and they didn't know how it was going to turn out. I agree with Joe. I love the immediacy of history presented in Saints. We see such a diversity of people and experiences and recognize that the church leaders are there receiving inspiration and guiding, but the actual history is being lived out by individuals, both men and women, and we feel their joy and their pain. And that I have just found so exciting. Not only that, but the diversity of places as well as the diversity of people. And that it becomes so much more the case, I think, in volume three, as we see the church spreading more and more through the world. Jumping into this particular chapter now, we begin by reading about Evelyn Hodges and social work that's being done by the Relief Society. Jill, what else can you tell us about Evelyn Hodges? I love the way she's portrayed in this chapter as a young woman, so enthusiastic about entering into this new field of social work. She did graduate from Utah State Agricultural College, as it was then known, now Utah State University. She was an active student there, active in social life. And she makes this decision to come to Salt Lake and be engaged with the social services department. I think it's so interesting that at this moment in time, you see so much training going on for local women. The social services department 
really began with Amy Brown Lyman and one paid worker. And they just saw that the caseloads they were given through the 20s could not be handled by that small group of people. So they immediately began holding these social service institutes to train Relief Society women in various stakes. And that's happening all through the 20s. Undoubtedly, Evelyn gets hold of this access to social services training and goes and volunteers at the department. One of the first things she takes on is a very short-lived program, which was taking underprivileged children into the country, these urban children for a rural vacation. So she starts out in Salt Lake City and she's able to take these children from Salt Lake City to Logan, her home area, 13 children to experience the country. Whether that was her first taste or not as a volunteer, she is soon willing to be enmeshed in this work and has not professional training in a school of social work, but like so many people during this early period, she is drawing from this training that was given to Relief Society workers in social services. And we're talking about six weeks of training that teaches them how to interview families, how to go into a home and assess needs. And she takes to it and she is in social work for the rest of her life. That's a a little bit of a taste of Evelyn. Thank you for that, Jill. We were talking just a moment ago about how different Saints is compared to some of the other more traditional scholarly publications in terms of the angle at which it approaches the subjects. And the same could be said of this particular story. We could have used Amy Brown Lyman or a senior church figure, but here we are using Evelyn as our cameraman, really. She's telling us the story of the social work that's taking place during this time. And hopefully readers appreciate that different angle from which the story is being told. But there are, of course, some peculiarities. And this is always going to occur when we have different Latter-day Saints and we use non-leaders to tell our story. And one of those is how she turns down the paid position for this voluntary one. And I wonder if you could tell us anything about why she might have done that or if you know why she did. I do not know why she did. I can't answer that question except to relate it to my own experience. When I first started working in the church history department, I was an intern who was paid a very small stipend compared to the salary I had received as a school teacher. But it was so exciting for me to have that opportunity that I snatched it. And I think that Evelyn did the same thing. This was an opportunity to get her feet wet. And I don't know her story well enough to know what it was in social work that had this tremendous appeal to her But it was a relatively new field. As I say, very few people in Utah had professional training. And so to go from an institute or some kind of minimal exposure in social work to actually taking on clients and working with them on a day-to-day basis, and we saw these caseloads were incredible. From her oral history, I have the sense 
that she was very interested in the personal dimension of this. And she is taking this on right as we see the stock market crash and the needs of the unemployed becoming more and more intense. She talks about the importance to her of counseling those who were discouraged by their unemployment as much as helping them to get the money they needed to go forward with their lives. So she's administering relief, yes, but she's also working intensively with people who are depressed, who need a hand up because of this discouragement that came with being unemployed and unable to provide for their families. Well, and I think one of the reasons I really like Evelyn is that she seems so invested in the work. She's not just looking for a job. She's not looking just to get into a cushy career, if it even was. But she was genuinely motivated to try and help these families. And we'll talk in a moment about the wider context of what's going on in and around Salt Lake. But we know that there is obviously this financial crisis that's taking place. And I wonder if you could tell us, how did the social services of the Relief Society react and adapt to the changing situation over the years as it tried to cater to the needs of people in and around Utah and Salt Lake? As you said, this was a dynamic department that had to make many adjustments, and some of them are really far beyond the scope of this particular chapter because the Great Depression and President Hoover's response, followed by President Roosevelt's response and the establishment of a federal emergency relief administration had a tremendous impact on the structure of social services and its responsibilities. Again, a little beyond this chapter in 1934-35, when we see federal relief funds coming into Utah, there is no way to disperse them through government agencies because they don't exist and there aren't enough social workers to work in those agencies as they're formed. So the Relief Society Social Services Department is federalized for a period of time It actually becomes a federal entity with federal employees. So people like Evelyn become authorized as county. It's a county relief agency funded by the federal government for a time. And then as those county agencies are firmly established with social workers, the social services department takes on a different role. It really becomes much more involved in direct services like foster care and adoption And it maintained that identity through the 50s and 60s until 1970, when it was absorbed into what became known as Unified Social Services and then Latter-day Saint Social Services. So what was run by the women for many years after correlation really became incorporated under the larger church umbrella. Evelyn herself, about 1934, after this period of federalization, to work for a county welfare agency. And then she became involved in the Department of Social Work briefly at the University of Utah and then finally at the Utah State Agricultural College or Utah State University, where she stayed for a long time. So her own trajectory reflected in ways the changing field of social services and changes in the Relief Society Social Services Department. 
Jill, can you tell us anything else about the Relief Society Social Services? Just that this structure, as I said, had been flexible and continued to be flexible and innovative. It was important for the church to have a bridge between church services, the bishops and the Relief Society presidents, and government agencies. And Relief Society Social Services continued to play that role up until 1970. Because it had licensed social workers, it could carry out adoptions, it could make foster care placements, and that foster care placement became important for the period of time that Indian student placements were done under church direction. It required a licensed agency, so the Relief Society Social Services Department carried forth that role and handled much of that through local relief societies and placements of those Native American students in member families for so many years. That program was ultimately phased out, and the other work of social services was absorbed for a while by LDS Social Services and other welfare entities. One more comment on Evelyn Hodges. I just find it interesting that she kept up an interest in social work beyond just teaching at the Utah State Agricultural College or Utah State University because she served in various associations like with the Utah Women's Legislative Council, the Utah Mental Health Association, the Committee for Juvenile Detention in the State of Utah, a Committee for the Aged, and even volunteered with the Young Men's Christian Association. So there was just this part of her that wanted to reach out and help others, and she continued that until her retirement in the 1970s and even beyond. Well, thank you, Jill. I certainly hope readers come away emboldened by the way that Evelyn approached helping others, and perhaps it might inspire people to help and to serve where they can. Whether we're in a financial crisis or not, there's always others who are in need of help and, most importantly, of love. Well, that actually brings us very nicely to the point where we should delve into the Great Depression, as it were, a bit more. And Joe, I know this is an area that you've spent a lot of time researching and writing and thinking about. And the title itself is is aptly titled Hard Times. Could you begin by telling us what was the Great Depression and what caused this crisis? Well, it was an extreme economic downturn that had never happened before on this level, not in America and probably not in the world. By 1929, the country was actually beginning to enter into a recession. There was overproduction and companies began cutting back. When they cut back, they cut back on employment, purchasing begins to decrease. Maybe some people can't meet their debt obligations. You start getting some defaults. There were uh, bank failures. There were 5,000 bank failures in the 1920s. We don't talk about it a lot, but that was an issue. And then people began to think in terms of protectionism for companies and businesses in America. And the idea of tariffs and quotas became involved. And with the way the world was, particularly the Atlantic world was at that time, trade was very entangled. Another element was something called the gold standard, which governed how different currencies would be valued against each other. But this kind of locked nations into a certain set of practices that they needed to follow to maintain the value of their currency. So when the stock market crashes, 
A lot of value is lost in the American economy. People are panicking. People are defaulting on debts. Businesses are beginning to fail. And we're now beginning to restrict trade. So one of the things that would have helped is if we could have expanded trade, at least in retrospect. And instead, we're restricting trade. Other countries begin to restrict trade. And the kind of image I have is there's a number of things going on throughout the 1920s that lead up to the stock market crash. And then once the crash comes, there's like this cascade of bad news. And one thing just follows on another. Uh, as I said, if you reduce production, you lay off people, you have less purchasing, you have people defaulting, banks get nervous, they stop lending money, you don't have as many homes being built, so you're not hiring in that area, and so on. And it just kind of piled on in an unforeseen way. Initially, the thinking was that it wouldn't last long. The stock market did recover for a short period of time. And through 1930, it did not look that extreme. It was still in the realm of a recession, maybe a bad recession. But by 1931 and 1932, you had various industries totally collapsing. And I should hold my hands up here. I mean, whenever we talk about money and <laughs> stocks and shares and banks, I mean, I always get nervous. Finances can be a terrifying thing for people. Can you give us some insights as to what this meant for individuals at the time? Yeah. A lot of people lost their jobs. In Utah in 1932, I think it's 33% unemployment. At the same time, people lost wages. They might not have lost their job, but they may have reduced hours, reduced wages. In some industries, they cut wages. So you have the people directly affected in that way. You have foreclosures and evictions that take place. Money for loans is hard to get. And if you're in a situation where your resources were not that great to start with, and you have to go back through the 1920s, for, for Utah in particular, Utah was not thriving in the 1920s. It relied on agriculture, and agriculture had really declined. So people were hurting in that regard. A heavy relying on the mining industry and in manufacturing. And both of those, well, mining in particular, because the metals weren't needed as much for the production for World War I as they had been. But you have a decline in those areas. And then with the Great Depression, mining collapses almost completely. It falls 85%. And you have nowhere else to go to replace the income for those workers. And so the opportunities are greatly reduced. And for the people who are unemployed and don't have resources, they begin to look towards various forms of relief. And the church provides relief, uh, the counties provide relief. But you're reduced to, at least initially, almost primitive levels. There's a story in Utah County in 1931, to help the poor, they fish a lake and they give them the fish. There's very limited resources to share at that time. People don't delay getting married, but they delay having children. People don't go on missions. That declines significantly. When the Great Depression began in Utah, the average per capita income was $505 a year. And at that time, for a family of four, $2,000 was considered sufficient to get by on. It wouldn't be poverty. It wouldn't be great, but it wouldn't be poverty. So before that, the average income was enough for a family of four. You'd be at about $2,000. In 1933, it's $303 per capita income. So the means to live on is just evaporated. And it's kind of a great irony that it's World War II 
that more than anything else pulls the world out of the depression. But World War II is a consequence of some of the things involved in the Great Depression, particularly in Germany, because it's the situation in Germany affected by what happened in the United States. And Germany begins to struggle economically. They're borrowing heavily from the United States to pay their reparations to France and Britain. France and Britain need that money from Germany to pay their debts to the United States. Money dries up coming from America, so Germany can't meet its obligations. Their system begins to collapse, and it opens the door for Nazism, which, you know, there's all of these little elements in the world that are tied together, and you kind of like tug on one string in one place. And in most cases, you're working back to World War One or creating circumstances where, where this unfolded. But for individuals, it's a catastrophe. Well, we would love to know too, Jill, how were women specifically affected during the depression? I mean, a lot of the wages lost or the jobs lost that we talk about probably affected more men, but we just want to know from your perspective or research, how were women affected during this time? Well, of course, women were affected in the ways that they provided for their families. One of the things the Relief Society did was to try to hold classes, do training for women in terms of how to provide on a small or negligible income. Uh, One of the stories I remember Belle Spafford saying is there was great emphasis in the Relief Society on avoiding waste. And as a Ward Relief Society president, Sister Spafford remembered going into orchards around the neighborhood and collecting the windfall fruit, not the fruit you would harvest, but the windfall fruit, and taking it to the ward and canning the windfall fruit. And she said even before the bottles were cool, people were lined up to get that food. I've always just thought that was a really touching image of how desperate people were. So There was a lot of emphasis on how to conserve food and not waste. And then we had stakes that began to set up warehouses for commodities and clothing. And that is one of the ways the Relief Society and the church is cooperating with the county is to stock these warehouses with clothing and commodities. And then, of course, you have women doing cottage industries, whatever they can do for handwork And part of this time, the Relief Society sets up the Mormon Handicraft Store, which is kind of a throwback to earlier Relief Society times when women sold their handmade goods, their homemade goods on commission to make a little money for the family. There's also a situation in regards to employment for women who are employed. There became a policy, I think, somewhat sponsored by the federal government. Uh, was applied in some of the federal agencies that if your husband was working, you could not be hired. Or if you were hired, you were let go. It was (laughs) that drastic at times. And then there's other situations for women with a husband and wife. Sometimes the husband would leave the area to find employment. And there's stories of women relating how lonely it became, how hard it became to be apart. And sometimes it would be months at a time or even a year at a time the husband going off and trying to find work wherever he could, sometimes leaving the state if it were necessary. And then there's other situations where the women just had to take over the full responsibility for a family. 
I remember one of my neighbors in Alpine, Utah, who had lived through the Depression, talked about going to the mill and getting old flour sacks so that she could make underwear for the family. People may do in incredible ways. Part of the challenge in that area is they didn't know that it was going to end. Roosevelt, uh, when he was campaigning at one point, talked about maybe high levels of unemployment are just the way it's going to be. Maybe our industrial society has reached its climax and it's not going to get any better. And we're just going to have to rearrange our society so that we can handle the needs of people who are always going to be unemployed in large numbers and so on. So it was pretty scary. So for people to have hope in the future, the one thing that did happen is that people did try to help. You had local efforts. You had the community chest in Salt Lake City. You didn't necessarily have your problem solved, but you got a a helping hand for a period of time. You got work with the WPA and there was income from that or the CCC or something of that nature. My father was a teenager during the Depression and he found work with the CCC, Civilian Conservation Corps. He traveled all over the United States with it for several years. $30 a month, 25 of it was sent home to his parents and he had $5 for himself, which was not a small amount, but at least you got some immediate help. You may not know how it's going to turn out, The church's efforts, the church security plan, gave people a real boost and a lot of help. It wasn't able to solve the problem. At that point, the church didn't have the resources, but they put in the effort, and thousands and thousands of people were helped and given opportunity to work, were provided with food and other necessities, and felt at least something positive was happening. Somebody was trying to do something. They say the the most important aspect of what Roosevelt did was speak to the country the fireside chats and so on, in such a personal way that people felt he was their friend and he was going to try and help them. There are some very tough uh, topics and experiences in this chapter. And we would like to ask both of you, why are the experiences in this chapter important for Latter-day Saints to know or to learn about or to understand better? Well, the history of the church itself was one of hardship. So that's not a novelty necessarily. But this is a situation where the forces that you're dealing with are not very much under your control. As an individual, you don't have a lot of influence over those. And yet to see the way people respond, to see the initial relief efforts through uh, Relief Society and bishoprics and social services, and then the church organizing the church security plan to correlate relief efforts throughout the church, maybe in a sense beginning of the idea of correlation in the church, that the process of moving forward and not just accepting the situation for what it is. If you look at the beginnings of the church security plan, it's a great lesson in how decisions can be made in the church, are made in the church. There was a great deal of debate. There was a three-year period where it was discussed how the church should move forward and when and in what way. And then at the end of it, the prophet said, President Grant said, I finally felt right about where we were, and then he announced the church security plan. But there was a lot of work done before that, a lot of discussion, a lot of debate, a lot of reasoning it out in your mind before the inspiration was there to say, yes, now is the time to move forward with this. And it was such a tremendous program. It is the foundation of the church welfare program today, which has worldwide attention. So there is something about having gone through a passage of time like that and seeing the spirit of the people 
during that time, not knowing exactly how it was going to turn out, that reassures us that we can get through these things, that the Lord is going to be involved. And though we might not be able to see the end from the beginning, that we've got to walk out into the darkness away. There's something beyond that darkness that will work out for us. Yeah, I think this is such a great chapter because of the focus on individuals and their decisions. We see Evelyn Hodges making this decision to jump into social work and give it her all and to deal with something that someone really just barely out of college, I think, would find very hard. These overwhelming caseloads. I think of her pulling that roll top desk down when she left the office to just say the day is over, even though she took her folders home to work on cases. But I think of Leah Witzow in the European mission, realizing she can't do this all herself and taking the initiative to train these other leaders in working with young women and to develop her own manual for beehives. These are people willing to jump in and innovate. Or the young woman in Germany, Helga, who's feeling the strain of encountering people who want to shun her because she's a Latter-day Saint. You know, she makes the decision to sing her song and be a Latter-day Saint, and she's proud of it. And there's just something in the grit and perseverance of these people and the couple in South Africa. So the chapter is well-titled, Hard Times. No matter where you are in the world, you're going to encounter hard times. And I love the strength that we see in these individual saints. Well, thank you both so much for sharing your insights into this chapter. I think this is going to really help our listeners to better understand what is going on and some of the ways in which the Latter-day Saints in this chapter are trying to make sense and to get through life. So thank you for joining us and being with us here on the podcast today. Yes. Thank you for inviting us. Thank you for listening to this week's episode. We hope you enjoyed it. We hope you took away some new insights into this volume. And we would love to hear your thoughts, opinions, questions, and insights from this chapter of Saints. And you can email saintspodcast at churchofjesuschrist.org. It would be great to hear from you.